All right, everybody, welcome to the June 15th edition of Cascadian Views. I've got Dan and Chris with me today. Uh, JJ's still on his extended trip. How are you guys doing? Good. Doing okay. Uh, I'm going to make a conscious effort to not start this week with shit Trump said, uh, and we'll instead focus on something uh, maybe positive, but at least uh, on the right side of the aisle for my taste. The uh, DNC has released the the debate lineup for the first two debates. They're going to be split into two. 20 candidates will qualify or have qualified, 10 each night. Um, there were some interesting things, I, I think, in the breakdown. One of the ones we discussed in the Facebook group a little bit was that uh, Warren is really the only big name on her night. Right, and that's the first night. Yeah, yeah. she has nobody really at any sort of national level that's anywhere close to her. I, I mean, she's, in fact, moved into second place in a lot of early state polls and whatnot, uh, beating out uh, Sanders. Right. Well, I mean, a three-way tie in Iowa, basically, and I think she's tied in Wisconsin. And uh, last I saw in California, actually, there was a poll that had her moved up into second place, too. So Which is she's really good news big moves. Yeah. Well, that's terrible news for Harris. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah having a hard time getting traction pretty much anywhere. But I, I see the thing. I don't necessarily think that's bad for her. She is picking up steam. She doesn't really need this. I think mm -hmm. it actually screws over most of all Inslee. Uh, because Warren's just basically going to agree with him on everything. Yeah. I, I mean, I made the point that Warren and Inslee talking would probably be Inslee auditioning for a job. Uh, in that administration, but the he needs a way to break out, and I don't see it on that night. It's going to be probably more of a love fest than anything. Uh, like Warren is on board with a lot of big ideas from all these people, it, yeah. maybe minus Gabbard. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I well, I mean, I look at the field right now. There, it's diverse enough now in terms of ideology and opinions that there is room for some big arguments and, you know, big areas where some candidates can, you know, say they're better on issues than others. So I think, yeah, well, and, and the ones that are going to draw off a lot of fire are going to be Biden and Sanders themselves. I mean, I think mm -hmm. Biden's got a lot of avenues that could be at least uh, targeted for criticism by, you know, whether it's Kamala Harris or Kristen Gillibrand or, uh, let's see here, or, you know, Sanders himself, you know, depending on how he wants to do it. Although at the same time, yeah, Sanders is going to be taking fire from Bennett. Uh, I guess he's been in some kind of weird feud with John Hick and Looper for a little bit this week, yeah. uh, which is... Kind of smart strategy, actually. I mean, if I were Sanders, I'd want Hick and Looper to be taken. Well, no, I'd want him to be taken up some of the percentage because, you know, if someone's going to vote for Hick and Looper, presumably they're not a Sanders person. So, you know, I mean, more you likely say that, be... but there was a surprising amount of Sanders Trump voters. Right, it right. Was like a fifth of his voting base. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's the people that were out to fuck over Hillary no matter what. But. Yeah. In an election where there are actual, you know, relatively conservative and moderate Democrats running, and one of them is the current front runner, uh, I think you know Hickenlooper might take a percentage point or two out of Biden if people were inclined to vote for Hickenlooper at all, which they are not. But 
<laughs> maybe if maybe if Bernie attacks him a few times, then you know some conservative voters would you know gravitate to him and like yeah you know screw Bernie, I'm gonna vote for you know or say that I'm supporting Hickenlooper rather than you know going immediately to Biden. Yeah, certainly that second night is the interesting one because everyone on that stage has an obvious incentive to take down Biden, and then many of them have an incentive to take down Sanders as well. Right. Because you're not getting anywhere unless you deflate the two of them. I'm not entirely sure the smartest play is to go after Biden. Um, I I, I could be very much wrong in this. I'm really Mm. talking out my ass, and I want to make that clear up front. But one of the things that we've, at least I have noticed with Biden, is he has, in fact, fixed a lot of the dynamics in the race just by getting in. And one of the things that tends to happen when you have a, a real front runner, a real standard bearer like that, is that a, when you get down to just a few of them, everybody falls behind one person. You're, you're kind of hoping to be that person, the not Biden. Uh, if you take out Biden too early, I mean, it just goes back to the same fiefdoms we had before. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it just re-implements the exact race we had before. And nobody really, except perhaps Warren, is really better off for it. Everybody else is still scattered around at like 8%. Nobody yeah. has, has coalesced. And I, I, I think leaving Biden in there means everybody who's not on board with Biden is going to eventually coalesce into one of the not Bidens. And the smartest mm-hmm. play is just hoping you're that one. Well, that's also, though, the collective action problem that the whole Republican field had in 2016. And <laughs> the front runner won. Right. So, I mean, yeah, if, if you wait too long, then he just walks away with it because everyone's, you know, waiting to, you know, jump on Ted Cruz because he's, you know, getting too close to Trump. I, uh, I do right. think Warren's support has solidified and grown to the point where if she knocked out Biden, she could really kind of step into that. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think the other ones have gotten anywhere close to that. Yeah. I mean, I think you've got a point that. I'm not sure there's a lot to be gained by attacking Biden directly. I mean, he's so well known and it's not like anything about him is a secret. Uh, You know, he's got a lot of casual support or support that's based on, I think, you know, past affinity, proximity to Barack Obama. But it's not like somebody's going to learn that. Uh, he was a supporter of the crime bill in 1995 and decide that's a deal breaker. That's just not going to be an impact on anybody's vote. Um, it seems like most people who complain about the crime bill are, are young. Well, yes, yes, that's because <laughs> I but, mean, that was, that was a very unfortunate piece of legislation, but mm-hmm. it wasn't like it was set out to hurt anybody. Like the black community, the congressional black caucus really, kind of pushed for this in a lot of ways. It was something that we hadn't really thought through. And we're dealing with the consequences, how horrible they are. But nobody was vindictive passing that crime bill, I don't think. Well, I mean, it was it, it was a defensive measure because, you know, Clinton needed to shore up his, you know, bona fides as a you know person who was going to represent law and order. And the fear and probably justified fear was that Republicans were going to come in and do something more punitive later on. But, yeah, I mean, and I think what a lot of young people also forget is that, you know, crime was a major issue 
not just because of, you know, media, you know, fear and uh, rhetoric, but yeah, so bad we passed real gun control. There was How an escalation of actual crime. Yeah. Uh, or at least, you know, crime in the streets. But yeah, it, it's symbolic of a lot of policy decisions from that era. You know, three strikes laws in the states uh, move towards privatizing the prison system and things like that. None of those are actual provisions of the crime bill itself, but they're all kind of of a piece with you know similar legislation that happened, which has been absolutely disastrous and you know thrown millions of people in prison and criminalized a lot of behavior that really shouldn't be, or at least, you know, led to punishments for a lot of behavior that are out of proportion to what, you know, is a more socially forward thinking and effective way of dealing with crime. But yeah, anyhow, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that there is going to be benefits for some candidates though, if they can make some contrast with Biden and, what I keep coming back to is if they can make some better case that they've got a better connection or some better claim to Obama's legacy, even if it's just in spirit rather than in the literal connection to the man that Biden himself has. Because that's that's the real halo. And that's what you know drives Biden up to 40 percent in the field where, you know, so much of that support is casual is that he's got the connection. He's got the most popular Democratic president. Uh, really, in modern time, who put the Medal of Honor, Medal of Freedom around his neck. That's huge. I I feel like the candidate who could be most poised to do that is probably Booker, actually, and he's not even on the same yeah. night as Biden. Yeah. Yeah, Booker, uh, Harris would be another, or, you know, Warren's kind of striking her own brand, which is in contrast to Obama. But See, I don't think Harris does it quite as well. She has a, a very yeah. different sell. But that, that community organizer thing that really came through with Obama, that I care about people, that we're all in this together, that's mm -hmm. something that I think Booker sells extremely well. Yeah. Oh, oh definitely. Yeah. Who do you think is most screwed, Chris? Who, who got the worst of it? <laughs> I, I, um, you know, Ken was trying to talk me out of this on uh, on the Facebook group, but I actually think that Warren got a pretty bad deal. Like, I think it's just that so much of the wattage is going to be Biden versus Sanders. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the two main draws. That it's kind of like, yeah, the fact that she'll be the best on the stage that night may not really mean that much. Because she's not on the right stage, she, yeah. she needed to be in a debate with Biden. I think. I, I think this. I think you're right. I think this is kind of the phase where she would have benefited most from that. You know, continue to elevate herself and take herself from being an ambiguous to third to a more unambiguous second. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I, I still think overall, Inslee got the Ross deal, but I think in terms of actual effect on the outcome of the race, you're right, Warren was probably screwed the most. Yeah, I mean, Inslee's always been kind of a, he's an issue candidate. I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure really how much he, you know, nobody says, you know, I'm running as an issue. I don't actually think I'm going to be president, but I, I, I don't know. I'm just not seeing the leap. I think, you know, he's certainly a very credible Veep, especially for, um, you know, 
I think if the ticket is in a position where it needs some balance or if someone perceives, you know, the need for a white man on the ticket, Ansley's pretty well positioned that. for that. By balance, yeah. you mean they need a white guy. Yep. But <laughs> there's a good chance it's going to be a white guy at the top. So that would be a huge mistake if it were Biden <laughs> or Bernie deciding that that's how they were going to add to their ticket. That would be a disaster. <laughs> All right. Uh, I guess we'll we'll move on to Trump's, uh, let's say, feisty ABC interview. <laughs> I don't know how anybody thought it was a good idea to put him in a room with George Stephanopoulos. And I'm not the only one who thought that, by the way. Uh, it, Ann Coulter, uh, her biggest complaint about this whole thing was who the fuck let the president alone in a room with George Stephanopoulos? She could not believe that happened. She called it a staffing failure of the highest order. Uh, and I completely agree because we know he just the things pour out of his mouth with no thought or anticipation. He uh, stated at, at one point, probably the biggest bombshell of the night, although there were several, that he would uh, he, he would take dirt on his opponents from a foreign government, and he probably wouldn't God. tell the FBI <laughs> because they're out <sighs> to get him. Yeah. That uh, that was the one that even got Republicans pissed. Uh, although not enough of them. <laughs> and some of them tried to trial balloon it two ways. Lindsey Graham tried to both sides the shit out of that for like 12 hours before he finally just came out and said it was unacceptable. Yeah. God damn it. Uh, and the, the line of defense has been that the Steele dossier coming from a, a UK intelligence agent who had gone freelance, had retired from the business, uh, and the Clinton team paying for that and turning over to the FBI was accepting dirt on your opponents from a foreign source, which... Except I mean, he turned it over to the FBI. I don't think he even yeah. gave it to the Clinton campaign. <laughs> well, the Clinton campaign did uh, front some money for uh, the research that went into Right. They were third or fourth in line in doing so, but they did. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But again, it wasn't information that ultimately went to the campaign. It was, oh, this is actually something that this is criminal. It needs to go to the FBI. Yeah. I say it could be a serious foreign intelligence issue. Let me notify the foreign intelligence. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, though, I mean, who's taking the flack for this, though? Who's really getting you know lots of heat it's nancy pelosi because impeachment isn't moving fast enough <laughs> so maybe maybe he's crazy like a fox if it's put pelosi in a bind pelosi actually had pretty successfully put out the impeachment uh fire with the contempt uh yeah. circus she had used that as an avenue to really vent these frustrations into and then this really did just completely blow up all the like benefit of that plan yeah, I mean, now it's right back to why, you know, why isn't it happening now? Like, well, there's, you know, subpoenas going out. There's committee hearings happening. This is this is what it looks like as you approach impeachment. But it's not literally impeachment at this moment. And by the way, we may have, you know, 50 to 80 you know, Democratic representatives who are scared enough about how impeachment polls that they may not even vote for it. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's put her in more trouble than it has him, I think, you know, because who's going to indict him? Who's, you know, 
who, who's going to put it, who's going to put him in more trouble? Well, the, oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I was just going to say, that's it. Exactly. Like we know his own party won't hold him accountable. We know that the Mueller report is not going to come along now and deliver something against him. Mm-hmm. What, what kind of trouble can he get in at this point? Yeah. Pretty much just losing election. Yeah. Well, that, that's it. Yeah. Uh, and, go ahead. No, no, no. You, you got it. No, okay. Uh, I was, I was going to say one of the things that I think was so good in this, this interview and it hasn't aired in its entirety, but they've been releasing a couple clips every day. We've gotten like 20 minutes of material from it so far. Uh, is that Stephanopoulos, I believe intentionally, I, it's not verified it's intentional, but reading the transcripts, watching the clips, I think it's pretty intentional, uh, really gets Trump to hate him. Just <laughs> absolutely uh-huh. hate him. At one point, he's like, look here, you little wise guy. Which is straight up, you know, a bit from a 70s fucking comedy show where one guy's just blowing his top. Stephanopoulos gets under his skin without ever, without ever being a dick about it. All he does is is kind of when Trump lies, he ignores that and repeats what he knows is true. And it just pisses Trump off so much this entire interview. I'm sure half the shit he wouldn't have said if he weren't just absolutely despising George Stephanopoulos. Yeah, just like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, you know, screw you, little guy. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's a lesson in this for all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's a a couple other things that pop up in here. Uh, Where is my tab I had that open in? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, one of the, the kind of lighter bits, I guess, from it is that uh, Trump admits that he doesn't actually believe in UFOs. And this was something I know, not political, except it was opening up alien files was actually an issue his campaign focused on when he was running <laughs> for the Republican nomination. This was literally something they fed voters as a reason to vote for him. And he's out there, yeah, I don't really believe in it. And he hasn't released any of the files really. I think that's probably the best evidence we have that they're real. (laughs) (laughs) If he says it's not true, (laughs) they're out there. Uh, One other bit that he repeats in the interview, which uh, the White House has now admitted is a lie, uh, was that the Biden polls that showed him trailing do not exist. The White House has now said that they do, in fact, exist, that Trump was rather unhappy about it, but that they were very old polls, and Joe Biden's uh, policies have seen them drop 18 points since then. So they are no longer reflective of reality, and Trump is now winning. (laughs) Good. Good. Love it. (laughs) Yeah. This uh, this interview, which airs uh, tonight, It it will be airing just as the show is ending, I believe. Uh, in its entirety is it's amazing I mean you guys it'll have already aired by the time you hear this episode but if you have a chance to go look it up on YouTube or something please do Uh, the Washington Post has a collection of the various clips that ABC has released once a day Uh, under a collection George Stephanopoulos is filleting Trump daily wow yeah it's it's a wonderful collection they just have kind of all the clips in one page that you can play but you will see the entire full interview. I believe it, it's supposed to run for an hour, or at least it was done over an hour. Mm-hmm. 
be honest, I had never really thought of George Stephanopoulos as some kind of hardball interview. So I am really curious about this. <laughs> what the hell happened? Yeah. And uh, so Trump is, is actually kind of pissed about this. He, he's rolling it around. He, he just tweeted uh, like a couple hours ago telling people to enjoy the show tonight uh, in reference to the interview. But he, he took part of this week to call in the Fox and Friends for a 50-minute interview <laughs> yeah, where, yeah, where he basically said not to listen to everything yeah. he said in the Stephanopoulos uh, interview. And this is my favorite part of this whole story. He was so wrapped up in Fox and Friends this week to get his mind off this. He started directly tweeting the host by name, not tagging them, just writing their first name in his tweets and telling them what they should be saying on screen. I am not even mad, you guys. I am so not mad. You know, I'm calmer <laughs> than you are. I'm calmer than you are. <laughs> yeah, so it'll it'll be wonderful. I strongly encourage you guys to check it out. Uh, Chris, you want to tell us what's uh, what's going on with the aftermath of the the Mueller report and that dead horse? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's there's still some flesh on that horse somewhere. <laughs> I, I think the main thing this week is that it was the kind of deadline they'd set to find bar and contempt and, you know, House Judiciary had all the uh, mechanical pieces in place to do this. And the Justice Department pretty much blinked. They said, OK, we're going to give you a lot of this background evidence you've you've asked for, you know, the underlying evidence of the report. And so House Judiciary said, OK, we'll sit on that a while longer. Um, House Oversight, meanwhile, went ahead and found him in contempt anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think in terms of, I'm just curious about the dynamics of that because I do feel like the Justice Department clearly decided they didn't want to go at this fight head on, mm-hmm. at least not at this stage, and. Will there be, there'll be something on those underlying evidence. I mean, we already know from the things, you know, some of the underlying documents have been released related to Flynn and Cohen, and there's been interesting stuff in there. So I think the House Committee will find things to follow up on. Probably not anything uh, that will fundamentally change things, but, you know, enough to keep committee hearings going and so forth. Um, They've also, I believe this week, had a private meeting with Donald Trump Jr. I believe that was Senate intelligence that did that. Mm -hmm. Where basically now that they have, you know, all of the text of the report, they can ask him about all of the things that he lied to them about. I imagine that transcript will make its way out sooner or later. So there should be some interesting reading in there. I think in terms of substance, really the substantive part of it is the committees will have some more material to work with and the Justice Department is kind of eroded its position a little bit about not turning over this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some of it's got to be, again, testing the waters with the courts and seeing how much they're going to be compelled to cough up if they continue to try and stonewall 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's really, I mean, I, every day I feel like I change my position on impeachment because, you know, the fundamental fact is no matter what, you know, he'll be acquitted in the Senate regardless of what happens. At the same time, though, you know, it's very important that he have some kind of accounting held for him. It's important for history that he be indicted. It's, you know, all the above. But, you know, they've got to be able to make people care along the way. They've got to be able to make, you know, that 15% or so of voters that are... Yeah, not Trump people, people that pay a little bit of attention, but not much, you know, aren't aren't really hardcore liberals either or, you know, committed Democrats and partisans, but just don't want to see the world blow up with something scary like a president being impeached. They don't like him, but it's scary if a president is impeached. Something's got to, you know, there's got to be some way to break through to them, you know, to say why it's necessary that that the country go through this. And I just... It's hard to make that happen, you know, even with hearings, even if they were to actually start doing a lot of this in public, it's because a lot of the information isn't new. I mean, this is stuff that, you know, Trump has very much done in public all this time. Yeah. I do think there's a wild card out there which doesn't have anything at this point directly to do with the Russia investigation or to do with the House hearings, which is uh, Southern District, New York. Meanwhile, is looking into whatever it's looking into. Right. Could be issuing indictments at any point against any number of people. There's been a fair bit of action with uh, Deutsche Bank as well, and they've been turning over Trump yeah. business records, I guess, to law enforcement. They didn't fight all that hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is probably related to the fact that they got hit by the European police, uh, Europol like six months ago in a massive money laundering investigation. <laughs> yeah. And so, New York, New York AG's office is also on lines of investigation as well. Yeah. And that's not under bars, you know, control. I mean that, that SDNY, they're doing good work and they're exploring a lot, but at the end of the day, Barr can crush them anytime he wants. But I mean, not without a lot of brouhaha. Right. But again, they've not really been worried about a lot of that blowback, at least until this point. And it's not like that's going to get him in legal trouble, which is, I think, the one thing he's worried about. Yeah. Uh, Well, let's move on from that soul-crushing realization. Uh, (laughs) Chris, you are, I believe, trying to tell me that border camps exist. I've never heard of this. I don't know what you're talking about. Explain yourself. The news would have covered this if they were a real thing. <laughs> yes. I mean, it certainly can't be true that there are these camps that are detaining people along the border and have children in them and people are dying in custody. And oh, it, people it, are it gets in. way worse than that. Did you see the, the thing that popped up this week with the Japanese internment camps they're repurposing for this? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was one of the fun little twists this week. <laughs> They're actually going to send them to the Japanese internment camps. Oh, oh used during World War II. 
just because I guess they didn't think people were making a strong enough connection. So <laughs> they wanted to be really explicit about that. We're going to use war crime, not war crimes, but yeah, the human crimes against humanity of the past for the ones of tomorrow or today. Yeah. 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 But I guess what struck me is I've just seen several friends this week kind of post like, this is horrible. This is outrageous. Why isn't anyone doing anything about this? And, you know, it's kind of making me think like, why isn't anything doing, why isn't anyone doing anything about this last summer when the, when the child separation policy was kicking in, there were senators and representatives, you know, regularly going to these camps and saying, let me in. And when they didn't get in, standing outside and talking to the press about it and those kinds of things. So, I mean, people, individuals in Congress could be doing those kinds of things. The House could certainly be doing something, you know, even if it is obviously not going to go anywhere in the Senate. Yeah, you'd think that, you know, hauling some people up there for hearings would be a no-brainer on this. They'd get the Congressional uh, Research Service to go down there and take some photos. I mean, just fucking show up. My congressman tried to do that, or my senator tried to do that. They kicked him out, but he made a hell of a press appearance about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He took questions in front of the barbed wire fence with microphones in his face and all that. It was it was a good moment. I mean, I wish we could have done more, but I says he can't come in. I guess even for a senator, he can't come in. Yeah, and that's the thing that Congress doesn't really have jurisdiction over this, you know, pretty clearly constitutionally. Mm -hmm. But there are still certain avenues they can approach. And they do, in fact, have jurisdiction over where money goes. They have unlimited investigatory power to determine what they should be funding. So, yeah, the the death count from these uh, camps just absolutely continues to rise to heartbreaking levels. Uh, There were children dying in these things roughly monthly, sometimes weekly. Uh, It's just, it's sickening. And they're sticking them in Oklahoma. I shit on Oklahoma. Republicans are not supposed to shit on Oklahoma. (laughs) Why are they setting up these camps in Oklahoma? They should be putting them in the middle of San Francisco if they hate these people so much. (laughs) Uh, That is what they were suggesting at one point, too. Yeah, I mean, that at least is internally logically consistent. I'm I'm not going to say it's, you know, logical in the real world. But by its own internal rules, that makes sense. Maybe they were hoping to get a kind of Trail of Tears connection in there. <laughs> oh my god. I, I, I honestly don't know if that would even make it worse. It, we're putting children in cages in internment camps we used to lock up racial minorities in. Yeah. Oh, man. And I just find myself thinking, like, it can't be that the only answer to this is, well, we've got to make sure we don't reelect him in, you know, 17 months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard, but I think that kind of is the only real answer to that. I think kind of legally it is, but I just, yeah. 17 more months of this kind of thing happening. I just don't know how we do that. I already got through three years of it. 
That's amazing to me. I did not think that would have happened so quickly. It's like it was fucking yesterday. We had this podcast. Jesus. All right. Well, that's depressing. So let's move on to something maybe hopeful. So two months ago, there was a bunch of movement on the National Popular Vote Compact. Uh, Nevada passed theirs by strong numbers with a Democratic governor, and Maine declined to pass theirs. It failed in the House. Uh, And as of now, Maine is in the National Popular Vote Compact, and Nevada is not. You're confused as to how those things happened? That's okay. Uh, (laughs) Maine basically had a do-over. It failed by, I think, like 11 votes. And then the, the Senate... Uh, passed it again, which they actually have a constitutional prerogative uh, in Maine to do so. If the Senate passes a piece of legislation that the House has uh, already voted down, they are required to take it up again. Um, And so they did. The the Senate insisted, and some people had some changes of heart, and it ended up passing by like seven votes. Uh, The governor has not confirmed she will be signing it, but she has not said anything bad about it. Uh, she, in fact, has spoken supportively of the national popular vote. So everybody's expecting she's going to sign it uh, in the next couple of days. Nevada, despite passing the bill through the, the Senate and the House, had their Democratic governor veto it, which seems a little bit out of character with the mood of the party. But yeah, uh, there you go. What he's the, the first Democratic that? governor in Nevada since 1999, so maybe he's just trying to keep his job and not piss off all those Republicans who are voting for Republicans and not him. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a close race that he won, but you know, Nevada. Oh, was I, I was also being Democrat very sweet. sarcastic with that argument. Oh, okay. Republicans well, I mean, are not going to vote for him. I don't know why he's trying to. It's not a good reason. I mean, yeah, he's not trying to get over Republicans. He's trying to get you know, <laughs> dumb. Both sides, da, 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 you know, I can't vote for Democrats because sometimes they're just as bad, blah, 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 people. But, yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's, it's not a good reason. It's dumb. He shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and he actually used the uh, small states argument. Oh, Jesus, the worst. <sighs> yeah, it, it does the exact opposite. Now their votes count the same as everybody else's. Yeah. You don't ignore them because there are three electoral votes that, you know, one party is guaranteed to win. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's more Nevada, but, you know. Nevada's a small state that actually gets attention from voters because uh, it's still vaguely swingy. It's moving more and more Democratic, but nobody goes to South Dakota looking for votes. They know how it's going to go. Same, no one goes to Vermont for the same reason. That's right. <laughs> what the hell? It's not protecting small states at all. Uh, the Federalist Society is absolutely going apeshit over the National Popular Vote Comp or Interstate Popular Vote Compact. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why. The thing's been around since the early 2000s. I don't know why they just discovered it, but uh, they, they put full-page editorials uh, in the Boston Globe, the Portland Press-Herald, and the New York Times from Federalist Society members uh, arguing very strongly that this is unconstitutional. Uh, I don't know how. Any constitutional system that allows the state legislature to award its votes to anybody it wants to is going to be just fine with a, a popular vote compact. 
Yeah. I mean, literally, the constitutional uh, requirement is the state legislature decides. That is yeah. literally written to the Constitution. However, uh, I don't have the exact wording in front of me, but it's something like uh, divided however the state legislature of the state thereof decides. And you know, that was actually the ultimate, you know, terrifying scenario in 2000 with Bush v. Gore, you know, because we're all old. Uh, <laughs> even if Gore had been able to get, you know, sufficient recounts and prevail that way, the uh, Nevada, the Florida state legislature had basically put him on notice that they were going to award their votes to Bush no matter what. They were going to change the law if they had to. I'm glad we didn't cross that bridge. <laughs> Not so sure Bush v. Gore was any better. Yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, uh, mm. I guess we're going to wrap this up here with one last uh, special story I'm throwing in here that I didn't tell you guys about because I really found it while I was reading oh. in the episode. Uh, and it's actually something we've been kind of covering in the group or probably more accurately Wesley's personal Facebook page. But uh, Alaska has had a bunch of budget wrangling going on up there. Our, the most northerly reaches of the Cascadia bioregion are southeast Alaska, where the capital happens to be. So I'm going to include them there. It's also where everybody but Chris met. <laughs> uh, so the governor proposed a budget that was absolutely terrible. Just slashed funding for the university system, for most programs in uh, rural areas of the state, which is a lot of the state because it's Alaska. Um, and uh, the Senate and the House didn't like it so much, but they spent a very, very, very long time trying to find something they did like better. Uh, a lot of this had to do with the permanent fund, which is earnings from a fund made up of revenue from oil leases that the state sells to companies that drill for oil. It's invested mostly in real estate, but also in some stocks and bonds and things like that. Uh, and you get a cut of it. It's a socialized sovereign wealth fund, uh, basically. Like Norway, except done very, very poorly uh, compared. The final... Um, compromise on that is they'll figure it out later <laughs> the the senate as part of the budget moved 11 billion dollars to a constitutionally protected fund for the dividend meaning they can't spend it on other things but did not settle on an amount for the dividend if you use the traditional formula it would pay out three thousand dollars to every man woman and child in the state this year this is money the state really doesn't have and desperately needs it for other things because over the last 10 years, they've managed to spend the entirety of their constitutional budget reserve. They've been operating at billions of dollars of a loss for basically a decade. Uh, and they're going to figure out how much the dividend is sometime, hopefully before October when they have to pay. That, that was really it. Mm. <laughs> They just say it's coming at a later date. They actually writ that into the law, that they'll determine what to do with this later. Uh, the governor is not super happy about that. Mm -hmm. He campaigned on a full dividend. Uh, that was like one of his signature issues. 
Also, he doesn't think the state has the money for the budget the Senate and the House passed, and like most states in the country, he does have a constitutional line item veto. The U.S. president does not have a constitutional line item veto because the Constitution gives the money authority to the House. In the state, they can set it up however they want, uh, and he can veto specific individual things in the budget, and they will all stand. The way that the Senate and the House are split up with the bipartisan majority coalition and whatnot, uh, they don't have the votes to override a line item veto. So he can take whatever the hell out of the budget he wants, and they can't really do shit about it. And we still don't know what the dividend's going to be, and the state is still broke. So, oh yeah, and they, they need that budget in place by July 1st, and the state runs out of money. Good times. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, actually, one more thing. The special session where they're going to work on the dividend is going to be in Wasilla and not Juno right. or Anchorage, where all the other special sessions were. Uh, Wasilla and the nearby town of Willow were often floated as uh, potential places for the capital to be moved out of Juno, which was a extremely important local issue because like half that state is or half that city is employed by the state government. Right. Yeah, yeah, that does not surprise me at all that uh, Dunleavy would throw the capital movers a bone. Although, you know, people always point out it's not like it's going to be free to move the capital anyway. But So uh, the <sighs> state legislators uh, kind of tried to head this off. They, they want the special session to be in Juneau or Anchorage, the two places it's always been held before. Mm -hmm. uh, and they can do that if they get everybody to agree basically they need 40 of 60 members so they need two-thirds to uh, agree to where to place a special session or it defaults to the governor's proclamation of a special session in wasilla and they can't get enough people to agree on one of the one of the options probably the dumbest thing uh, about this is that they all don't want it to be in Wasilla except for a few like you know really hardliners and they can't get enough people to agree on where not Wasilla is uh, move it there <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I always you know think every so often that you know what if I move back to Alaska? If I work for the state for another 18 months, I could qualify for you know retirement health care from the state. Oh, but, it doesn't have the money to pay you that. Yeah, it's <laughs> not, they're not going to. Yeah, no way. Yeah, that's all going to get slashed and burned. Yeah, they were they were talking something like a 40% reduction. The University of Alaska system budget uh, <sighs> was in the original budget that the governor sent over. I mean, it was brutal they were going wow. to eliminate village public safety officers mm -hmm. which are the closest thing to law enforcement in a lot of these tiny ass villages of like 300 people on rivers with no roads and you have to fly a plane to get anywhere with you know any electric grid hey they're still scheduled to pay me a 400 a month pension 30 years from now <laughs> so i'm keeping an eye on it <laughs> All right. I think that's going to do it for us this week. I'm going to go drink a lot of water and go to bed. <laughs> Feel better, Brock. I'll try. You guys have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye.